Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Amen. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say the YouTube rabbit hole? How many of you know what, what I'm saying? Okay, all right. This is a safe place. Uh, how many of you that know what the YouTube rabbit hole is would also say that you have fallen victim to the YouTube rabbit hole? Okay, again, safe place. The Lord is working. I see that hand. All right, yes. I, uh, I have fallen victim to the YouTube rabbit hole. For those of you who don't know what it is, YouTube has this feature uh, where it pops up suggested videos based off of the video that you've chosen. And in fact, you can actually set it to autoplay so that you can mindlessly watch video after video after video and go deeper and deeper down what we're calling the YouTube rabbit hole. Uh, and so, you know, since I've asked you to engage in some public confession, I, again, I'll, I'll confess, I have fallen victim too many times to the YouTube rabbit hole. Uh, I actually love YouTube. It is, it is my favorite social media platform, app, website, uh, whatever. Uh, if you're familiar with the Strength Finders test, uh, I, I typically, one of my top strengths is learner. So you can imagine someone like me sitting down in front of a website or an app like YouTube uh, that just has all kinds of information, right? It's got DIY videos, it's got uh, lectures and presentations, it's got reviews. There's just so, so many things that you can learn through YouTube. And, and just to prove that point, just to prove how great a resource YouTube really is, uh, earlier this year, Abby and I decided we wanted to remodel one of our bathrooms. Okay, now we could have hired someone to uh, go in there and remodel the bathroom for us and it would have taken maybe about two weeks. Why would we do that though when I could do it myself in two months and scream in frustration the whole time, right? Uh, you know, and so Abby obviously had no defense against that uh, bulletproof logic and so she agreed uh, we were gonna make this a DIY project. And even though I had not done probably about 70% of what was required uh, for us to do in that remodel, YouTube proved to be a, a great teacher, right? A great resource in helping me. So I learned how to uh, cut and lay tile for the first time. I learned some basic plumbing. I learned how to rewire some things. And, uh, you know, eventually we got the job done, right? And, and it's incredible to think of how much information, how much knowledge we have available to us, not, not just through YouTube specifically, but just in general. Literally, we have never had so much knowledge accessible to us than we do right now at this point in history. We can literally pull out a screen that's, you know, it's about the size of your hand, and within seconds, you can find an answer to really just about any question you could possibly think of. But, but let me ask you, in all of our access to, to information and knowledge, has our world gotten any closer to God? Well, let me ask that a different way. In all of our understanding, have we actually come to understand God any better? 
I'm sure many of us, if not most of us, would, would say no. Uh, that's the answer to that question. In fact, some of us might even say it feels as though we've gotten further from God as we've you know, gone into this sort of information boom. And so how is that possible? How is it possible that in the age of information, our world has actually uh, been unable to increase in its understanding of God? Well, Paul answers that question for us this morning in our passage, specifically in verse 21. He says that man does not and even cannot understand God through our own wisdom. And in fact, when we attempt to understand God through our own wisdom, when we, when we put our you know, best mind to it, what we actually conclude is that the wisdom of God is folly, or another word for that is foolishness. It is ridiculous to us. In other words, the, the plans of God or the wisdom of God is, is so far greater than, uh, than anything that our minds could comprehend. It is so far above what we could naturally process in our minds that even when we give it our best efforts, we completely fall short of understanding God's ways and God's mind. And to prove this point, Paul is going to uh, kind of play the comparison game here in this, in this passage this morning. He's going to uh, put man's wisdom up against God's wisdom. And, and he's going to do that in order to prove really just how much greater God's wisdom is than man's. And so for the sake of clarity, I, I want to just kind of give us a main idea this morning. This is what I think at the end of the day uh, Paul is, is trying to say to us. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. The wisdom of God is sufficient, subversive, and superior when compared to the wisdom of man. The wisdom of God is sufficient, subversive, and superior when compared to the wisdom of man. And each of those descriptors, the uh, sufficient, subversive, superior, each of those descriptors is going to be explained one by one in each of these three paragraphs that we see in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 this morning. And to do that, Paul is going to point to three different areas in which God's wisdom is exercised. And so, for example, in verse 18 uh, through 25, that first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 1, uh, or our passage this morning, we see God's sufficient wisdom in the gospel. God's sufficient wisdom in the gospel. Really, uh, we see this in a couple of ways. First of all, we see it in the power of the cross. So Paul starts this passage by saying in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now, if you're reading this very critically, you're, you're probably going to notice that Paul uses, I would say, some very interesting language here in this specific verse. He kind of uses this uh, present progressive language that we're being saved rather than uh, we are saved or we have been saved. And so some of us might read that and wonder, is, is Paul kind of insinuating that uh, our salvation somehow kind of hangs in the balance. Uh, 
that right now we, we are being saved, but there's always kind of this uh, hovering uh, reality that maybe one day we won't be saved anymore. Is that what Paul is saying? Well, uh, we know that that's not what Paul thinks uh, in terms of salvation, not necessarily from this passage, but when we look at what Paul says about salvation in general throughout the New Testament, we know he doesn't uh, believe that. But what he is saying here is that our salvation is progressive in the sense that it has not come to completion yet. The power of the cross has not had its full effect in our lives. And so through the cross, we are justified, we are being sanctified, and there's going to be a day when we are glorified. And and this is why Paul says in Philippians 1.6, Uh, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, I was talking with uh, one of my old college friends a couple weeks ago, and he let me know that he and his wife are in the process of adopting a little girl. She's three years old. And uh, I I know for those of you who, uh, many of us in this room have gone through the adoption process or maybe fostering, and so you know that is a very complicated process. It is long. Uh, It is is slow, usually. There's a lot of steps involved. And he let me know that they are now at the point where uh, they have uh, legally become the guardians of this girl. And, uh, And so the adoption is not complete yet, but they are getting really, really close. Right, And so I asked him, okay, at this point in the process, is there anything practically that would actually prohibit you from adopting this girl? Is there anything that would really get in the way at this point? And his answer really was essentially no. At at this point, there's nothing realistically that is going to actually prohibit them from adopting this girl. And within about a year's time, they are both, he and his wife, confident that they are going to be able to call this girl, not just, uh, not just a girl that they're caring for right now, right? She's living with them, uh, and not just, not just a girl that, uh, that their older son uh, knows and cares for as well. They're going to be able to call her uh, their daughter, right? The adoption process is going to be complete. And Paul is making a similar claim here. So God's work is not yet completely finished in us at this point. But if we are being saved, then we can also equally be sure that we will be saved. And so the question that we probably should ask then is how can we actually be sure of that? Where is our confidence coming from? Well, look at Paul's words at the end of verse 18. He says that the word of the cross is the power of God. Now, why is that significant? And also, what does it have to do with the wisdom of God, right? If that's kind of our topic for this morning. Well, God in his wisdom and also in his grace has made the cross a vessel, not for my power, not for your power, but for his power to be displayed. And so whatever kind of process that's initiated by the cross, it's a process that depends from start to finish on the power of God entirely. And it's by that power that our salvation is secure. So on one hand, we can't absolutely say that through the cross, God has saved us if we believe in him. 
But we can also say that he is saving us and that he will save us according to the power which he is working in us. And not only is God's uh, sufficient wisdom shown in the power of the cross in this passage, but it's also shown in the effect of the cross as well. So in verse 21, uh, Paul says that in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, God has intentionally made himself unknowable through the world's wisdom. And according to Paul, God is not cruel for doing this. He's not unfair for doing this. He is wise for doing this. He's wise for preventing man's wisdom from being the measure or method by which we actually come to know him. And the reason this is true, the reason that we can actually say this is a wise move on God's part is because if salvation were determined ultimately by our ability to comprehend God, if it was determined by our ability to comprehend his redemptive plan that is set forth in Christ, then none of us would ever experience salvation. None of us would be able to truly comprehend any of that. Last week, Abby and I, we watched this documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It's a, it's a documentary that's basically explaining how, uh, how social media is uh, manipulating uh, and influencing our culture. It's ruining the world, you know, just like really random stuff, really basic stuff. And, uh, and if you're actually, in all seriousness, if you are a parent, I especially encourage you to watch this documentary because it is very eye-opening in a lot of ways. But one of the things that really stuck out to me in, uh, in this whole, is about an hour and a half or so, in this whole documentary is that one of the guys that they interview who used to work for uh, Facebook said that on Facebook specifically, false information or misinformation is spread at six times the rate as true information. And I heard that and I thought, man, what a great case study to prove what Paul is trying to point out in this passage here. Human beings have an inability so many times to actually distinguish the truth from a lie. We have an inability to recognize right from wrong. And even in all our wisdom, we end up considering the wisdom of God to be nothing more than foolishness or folly. And yet God in his wisdom does not make salvation dependent on our intellectual capabilities. So what is salvation dependent upon? If it's not just dependent upon us uh, being able to think our ways through it or being able to understand it on an intellectual level, what is salvation dependent upon? Well, look with me in verse 23. At the beginning of this verse, Paul, Paul explains that uh, to Jews, Christ's crucifixion uh, is a stumbling block and to Gentiles, it's folly. Because in the Jewish culture, uh, you know, the cross was something that was horrific, right? It was brutal. It was the most heinous form of punishment that someone could actually receive. And it was actually really reserved for the worst of criminals. And so to say that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would have experienced such a death was not just shocking, it was, it was offensive. It was absolutely offensive to say that God in the flesh would actually experience such a persecution, such a punishment. 
To the Gentiles, though, it wasn't so much offensive as it was just ridiculous. It was ridiculous for them to think that the cross being such a display of weakness and pain and shame would actually be called by Christians and by God himself uh, something that was actually filled with power and strength. That was, that was ridiculous to them. But notice what happens in verse 24. So to some, the cross is nothing more than a stumbling block or foolishness. And yet to others, verse 24 says, it is the power and wisdom of God. And so what is it that actually separates these two groups of people? How do they both come to understand the cross so differently? Well, here's the answer. It is the call of God. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So our understanding and believing in the gospel is not about our ability to comprehend difficult concepts. It's about being called by God. And in his calling us, he reveals to us the message and the meaning of the cross so that we can be saved by it rather than confused by it or offended by it. That is the wisdom of God on display. That in the cross, in all its weakness, in all its brutality, it is the sufficient power of God to defeat sin and give us eternal life. Well, not only do we see God's sufficient wisdom in the gospel, but then in the next paragraph, verses 26 through 31, we see God's subversive wisdom in the church. God's uh, subversive, not submersive, uh, subversive wisdom in the church. And it's subversive, not, not in the sense that um, you know, maybe in the, in the sense that we typically think where it's some kind of violent overthrow uh, of the powers that are over us. But it's subversive in the sense that God, through the church, is actually taking the, the natural orders of this world, the natural orders of uh, society and cultures, and he's turning them upside down in order to create a completely different order. And this is a, a theme that we see all throughout Scripture, Right? If you're familiar, especially with uh, starting in the Old Testament, tracing kind of this theme all the way through the New Testament. Uh, so we see in Deuteronomy 7 that uh, when God chose Israel as his people, he did not choose them because they were a great nation or a great people. In fact, it says God chose Israel because they were the fewest people. God provides a messianic line, not through uh, young, fertile women, He provides a messianic line actually through women who were old in age and considered infertile, who had closed dead wombs, and he brings those wombs to life and delivers heir after heir after heir that produces a Messiah in the New Testament. And then God sends a Messiah who rules over and saves his people, not through warfare, not through uh, political independence or means, but actually through humility and self-sacrifice. And this theme of reversing or uh, subverting the natural order of this world continues even today in the church, God's people. And we see this really in, in two specific ways in verses 26 through 31. So first we see God's subversive wisdom in the church's diversity. 
So we've already seen in verse 24 that God has called both Jews and Greeks to the gospel. And we know that uh, even though the Corinthian church is primarily Greek, there are certainly Jews that are scattered into this congregation. But now we also see in this second paragraph, uh, we see that the diversity of the church is not just in its ethnic background. It's actually in its social background as well. So in verse 26, Paul says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. So we can assume then that some of this church's members were actually uh, uh, socially influential. They, they were in positions of power, though it certainly was not the majority of people, it seems. Which means that you have a very unlikely kind of grouping of people, a very unlikely mix of people and their social status and backgrounds that are represented in the Corinthian church. But not only do you see this subversive wisdom uh, working in the church's diversity, we also see it working actually in the church's weakness as well. So yes, you have some uh, people in the, in the Corinthian church who uh, are, are considered socially influential, uh, who are considered high-class people, but actually the majority of these people are considered insignificant, even, even worthless by social standards at this time in history. They are not the kinds of people that you would want to build a movement around. They are not the social influencers of their day. But verses 27 through 28 go on to say that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why is God wise for doing this? He's wise because in all the diverse backgrounds of the church and all the weakness and the mediocrity of the church's members, Christ becomes the clear source of our unity and our power. There are a lot of things that God has taught me throughout the past year through this very, uh, I hate this word, unprecedented season. I hate both of those words. I'm getting tired of them. But God has taught me a lot through this last year. One of the most challenging things, though, that he's taught me is that I go to a church where most people do not think like me, look like me, or vote like me. And I confess to you that too many times this year, I wish that was not the case. I wish that more people would see the, uh, the things that I see, would see the world the way that I see the world. And I was convicted last week when I started studying this passage because I realized I was not just being selfish when, when I was thinking that way. I was not trusting in the wisdom of God. I was not trusting that God has brought together a unique people it is a powerless thing to be part of a church where everyone is so similar that the unity of Christ becomes more a doctrine than a demonstration. It is a powerless thing when the legitimacy of the church is rooted far more in social popularity 
than in the actual sovereign power of God. The church, this is, this is what God is teaching me, the church is not an interest group. It is not a social club where, where my interests and my personal preferences and my personal desires are what define the group's overall purpose and mission. The church is a place where I die to myself every single day so that Christ would be exalted above everything else that could possibly define us. Everything else. It's a place where those on the outside can actually look in and say that there is something beyond the natural order of things that is going on here between all of these different people coming together. There is a power at work here that does not look like anything in this world. It is so far beyond what we would consider natural. That is what the church is supposed to be. And, and that's why Paul finishes this paragraph with a very clear command. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because both collectively and even individually, the church is a demonstration of God's power. Not our own power, not the world's power, God's power. Collectively, God is, is drawing all kinds of people to himself. And he is building unlikely relationships within the church. And then individually, he's using unlikely people, foolish, weak, lowly people like me, like you, we can be honest here, in order to accomplish his mission and his purpose. In wisdom, he has made the church a place where it should be impossible to boast in ourselves. Because it is so subversive, it is such a reversal of the natural order of things that we could only possibly conclude it is through his power alone that this is becoming true for us. And so we boast in the Lord and not ourselves. Well, not only is uh, God's wisdom sufficient, so, sufficient in the gospel, you know, it's a really good idea and a really bad idea to use alliteration in a, in a, in a sermon because you get your own words all mixed up. So anyway, uh, not only is God's wisdom sufficient in the gospel, not only is it subversive in the church, but then finally in, in chapter two now we see that God's wisdom is superior in the world. God's wisdom is superior in the world. So Paul begins this, uh, this chapter in verse 1, was saying, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, before we get any further, it's important to understand Paul is not promoting some kind of anti-intellectualism here. Okay, we know, again, as we just kind of read Paul throughout the New Testament, he is a sharp guy, and he is also really able to engage people on an intellectual level and challenge them with the truth of the gospel. And so I don't think Paul is saying, uh, you know, don't think, don't engage your mind when you talk about the gospel. But what's happening in this culture around Corinth at this time was that rhetoric or the way that you say something was actually becoming more important than what you actually said. And it's that idea that Paul is now arguing against in verse 1. 
And the reason Paul is sure to mention this is because uh, the idolization of rhetoric uh, or, or eloquent speaking was no longer just something uh, that existed in the city of Corinth or in the Greek culture at large, but it was actually uh, starting to become uh, something that was creeping into the church at Corinth. And this is also important, actually, for us to understand because it would be easy for us to read this whole passage and we spend all of our time this morning just talking about uh, or kind of comparing uh, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God and just talking about how foolish the wisdom of man is in comparison to the wisdom of God. But in reality, Paul, when he is writing these words to the church at Corinth, it is not a critique so much of, uh, of the, the wisdom of the world as it is really a critique of the church at Corinth for adopting the wisdom of the world. And so because that's Paul's tone here, I want to just close our time this morning by offering uh, two warnings for us as a church that, that come from verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 2. Two warnings when it comes to uh, forsaking God's wisdom as a church in favor of man's wisdom instead. And so here's the first one. Remember that being a spirit-empowered church is what's at stake. Being a spirit-empowered church is what's at stake. So in verse 4 of, of, of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So what the Corinthians risked, according to Paul, by adopting the wisdom of the world was not just an inferior philosophy. It was the potential to no longer be a people who demonstrated the power of the Spirit. And the same is true for us today. The, the wisdom of God that's displayed through the cross does not need our own wisdom or our own uh, eloquent presentation added onto it in order to help it along. Like, like we got to fill the gaps on the gospel for, for these people out there. If we forsake the wisdom of God in favor for the wisdom of man or for our own wisdom, then what Paul is saying is that we will actually end up forsaking the Spirit himself. So that's the first warning. Here's, here's the second warning, just quickly. Be wary when you find yourself in complete agreement with the philosophies of man. Be wary when you find yourself in complete agreement with the philosophies of man. So in verse 5, Paul tells us that he's avoided any kind of eloquent uh, language or worldly wisdom, and he's doing this so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but that it would rest in the power of God. In other words, no man-made system, no man-made theory, no man-made movement should actually ever be able to earn our allegiance or our hope once we have tasted and seen the wisdom of God that's been displayed through the cross of Christ. No kind of uh, comparison should be made there in our minds that we would actually give more of ourselves or even an equal amount of ourselves to the philosophies of man when compared to the wisdom 
of God. Nothing else compares to it. Nothing else compares to the wisdom of God. That is really what Paul is saying at the end of the day. It is sufficient. It is subversive. It is superior compared to all other worldly wisdom. And it is powerful enough to sustain us until the end. So as we close this morning, I actually just want to, I want to read over you Ephesians uh, chapter 3 here. Not all of the chapter, don't worry. Uh, a couple verses in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is actually going to be uh, both our prayer and our benediction this morning. So Ephesians 3 verses 17 through 19. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.